Our second reading this morning is also in, in two parts. Uh, part of it is from 2 Corinthians, and part of it is going to be from 1 Peter. Uh, you can find the text uh, in, uh, in your bulletins if you want to follow along. Hear the word of God. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. But I must not be too proud of the wonderful things that were shown to me. So a painful problem was given to me, an angel from Satan, sent to make me suffer, so that I would not think that I am better than anyone else. I begged the Lord three times to take this problem away from me, but the Lord said, My grace is all you need. Only when you are weak can everything be done completely by my power. So I will gladly boast about my weakness, then Christ's power can stay in me. Yes, I am glad to have weaknesses if they are for Christ. I'm glad to be insulted and to have hard times. I am glad when I am persecuted and have problems because it is when I am weak that I am really strong. And then from First Peter. So be humble under God's powerful hand. Then he will lift you up when the right time comes. Give all your worries to him because he cares about you. Control yourself and be careful. The devil is your enemy. And he goes around like a roaring lion looking for someone to attack and eat. Refuse to follow the devil. Stand strong in your faith. You know that your brothers and sisters all over the world are having the same sufferings that you have. Yes, you will suffer for a short time. But after that, God will make everything right. He will make you strong. He will support you and keep you from falling. He is the God who gives all grace. He chose you to share in his glory in Christ. That glory will continue forever. All power is his forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your invitation to gather here as sinners saved by grace, as your flock, as your people, to gather here on this Sabbath day to take a break from the things of this world and to spend time intentionally thinking about things that are forever. We thank you for the brothers and sisters who are gathered here, who have faithfully come out at your calling. We pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, bind us to one another, even as you bind us to yourself. We pray this day for churches all over the world as they are worshiping you. We pray that our voices would combine to make a a glorious choir singing your praise. We pray for brothers and sisters who are in places that are dangerous in places where they worship in fear. We pray that you would sustain them in the midst of their trials. We pray that you would have your will and your way with them in spite of the opposition of the world. Lord, we pray for those of our numbers who are not able to be here with us this morning because of sickness or because of distance. We pray that our fellowship would remain intact and would remain true. 
Lord, I pray that we would be in touch with each other, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Lord, I pray for our many small group Bible studies and ask that you continue to work in them and through them to grow us and to shape us into the kinds of people that you would have us be. Lord Jesus, you are our good shepherd. You have rounded us up even though we were prone to wandering away. You have made us into your flock. And so we trust you and we thank you and we bless your name this day. And we offer all of these prayers in your name for you have taught us all to pray saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we are still in our sermon series walking through the book of Acts. These last couple of weeks have been a little unusual because I've taken time to pause to talk about a single verse in Acts and to talk about some of the consequences of that verse. Acts 23 verse 8 reads this way. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits But the Pharisees believe all of these things. And this single verse prompted me to think a little bit more about why it's so crucial that we as Christians believe in these supernatural things, in the resurrection, in angels, and in spirits. And so I took time last week to just talk a little bit about what Scripture teaches on angels. And this week I want to spend time talking about what Scripture teaches on Satan and on fallen angels. Now, if you were here last week or if you uh, saw the sermon online, uh, there were several features of angels that I wanted to lift up. These features are going to apply to, uh, to Satan and to fallen angels as well. Firstly, with regard to the existence of angels, the Bible simply assumes that there are angels. No place in the Bible is there an attempt to prove that angels exist. In the same way that we simply assume that there is a sea or that there is a sky, uh, the Bible assumes that uh, angels are real. More than half of the books in the Bible do refer to angels. Jesus himself, of course, speaks about angels. And so, as Christians who are people who claim to be followers of Jesus, we believe the things that Jesus believed. And if Jesus believes in angels, then we believe in angels too. Regarding the nature of angels, the first thing that it's important to recognize is is that angels are created beings. So you and I are created beings. The moon is a created being. Dolphins are created beings, and then there are these things called angels. Uh, They are created, they are made by God, they haven't been here forever. They're not eternal. So angels are created beings. Angels are powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They can't do anything they want to do. 
angels can be in many places, but they can't be in more than one place at the same time. Angels are not omnipresent. They are in space, but they don't fill space. They move from place to place. All right? If the angels, uh, if the demons, for example, are in the man who's plagued with demons and Jesus casts those demons out, they leave him and they go into the, into the swine and they go, go off the cliff. If they're in the swine, they're not in the man. If they're in the man, they're not in the swine. Also, angels are intelligent and they have will. They have a free will. Okay, so they are moral agents in the same way that humans are moral agents. Angels are responsible for their actions, which is why there are angels that are called in Scripture elect angels or saved angels, and then there are fallen angels. Angels who, through the use of their intelligence and their will, have chosen to sin and to, and to go against God. We talked about several uh, jobs or functions that angels have uh, in Scripture. Now, everything that God creates has a job, all right? So none of us were just uh, born to sit in a lazy boy. Everybody uh, was, was created for a purpose, and that includes angels. Uh, and the primary purpose of all of creation uh, is to praise God. And so that's something that angels do. They spend a lot of time praising God. But another function of angels is to communicate God's truth to God's people. So there are a number of times in Scripture, and this is probably uh, what we're most accustomed to seeing angels do, is they bring messages from God. Uh, in the book of Acts, we have uh, the, the kind of parallel story of an angel coming to Cornelius and another angel coming to Peter so that those two people could get together. God God wants uh, these men who don't otherwise know each other to meet each other, and so he sets up an appointment and he uses two angels to make that appointment happen. Okay, so one of the, another thing that angels do is they are messengers from God. But the primary thing that angels do, and there are, by the way, hundreds of millions of angels, according to Scripture, the primary thing that angels do is that they minister to or they protect God's people. All right, last week we uh, read the account of Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man, being 40 days out in the wilderness, and then the angels coming to him to minister to him. They ministered to him in his fleshly nature. They probably brought him food or drink that he needed. Okay, uh, we also read about the story of Elisha and his servant uh, who were in the city of Dothan that had been surrounded by the Aramean army. and But God then also sends an army of angels that protects them. Uh, so the angels minister to and they protect God's people. So those things are true of angels. Now, some of the misconceptions, popular uh, misconceptions about angels, number one, that when we die, we become an angel. Okay, dead people are not angels. Your grandfather who's gone on to heaven, he's not an angel watching over you. Okay, angels and people are different kinds of creatures in the same way that a mushroom and a dolphin are different kinds of creatures. Okay, they're both made by God, but they're just different. Okay, so dead people are not angels. And, and uh, secondly, and this kind of uh, brings us into our conversation this morning, hell does not belong to the devil. Okay? 
Hell belongs to God, and it is a dungeon for the devil. So sometimes you see in the cartoons, you know, pictures of, of, of Satan, you know, with his pitchfork and uh, uh, ruling in hell. Like, you know, he's the, he's the chief executive of hell, and he, he runs hell. Uh, not, not at all. He's, he's going to be very unhappy when he ends up there. So that brings us to Satan and to fallen angels. Uh, in the same way that the Bible talks about angels that haven't fallen, the Bible also talks about fallen angels, and it talks about demons, and it talks about Satan, and it talks about the devil. <clears throat> um, and so uh, the, a number of the things that are true of angels are true also of fallen angels in terms of their nature, in terms of their being created, in terms of their existence. The job of these angels is the same, but the problem with the fallen angels is that they refuse to do their job. The angels that have fallen, the demons, were created by God to sing His praises, to bring messages to humans, and to minister to humankind. But they have free will, and they've chosen to go in a different in a different direction. And so everything that the fallen angels do, and everything that Satan does, and everything that the, that the devil does, uh, is wicked and is evil instead of good. All right? So rather than praise God... They spend all of their time cursing God and praising themselves. Rather than communicating God's truth to God's people, the devil and his minions are always lying and deceiving and trying to trick people and seduce people. Instead of ministering to us, they're always seeking to harm us. So they're doing a job. It's just not the job that has been assigned to them. Now, some misconceptions about Satan. Well, there's only one misconception that I'm going to talk about here uh, uh, today. And the rest of this uh, sermon is going to be uh, trying to straighten out this misconception. Uh, There is a, a view that's called dualism, a view of the universe called dualism. Uh, dualism posits that there are two governing principles in the world. You know, the positive and the negative. The light and the dark. The yin and the yang. And some people think that the devil fits into this scheme. And so there's a good God and a bad God. There's like Yahweh and the devil. As though they're somehow equal and opposite. The same way, you know, a proton and an electron are equal and opposite. Okay. That would be called dualism. Or, as, as you know, you see in, in Star Wars, you know, there's a light side and a dark side to the common force. Right? That view of things is called dualism. Uh, virtually every form of paganism is dualistic. Star Wars theology is dualistic. And also what I would call dumb Christianity is dualistic too. Years ago, when I lived in Pittsburgh, I had a friend of mine who was making a video documentary about a a poor little town near Pittsburgh, a town called Burgettstown. And he went, we went there, you know, with with our cameras and uh, were putting together the story of this town. And one of the fellows that we interviewed was uh, a, a drunk. 
I mean, we met him in, in a tavern on the main street. It was the middle of the afternoon, and he was completely drunk. We had gone there uh, because it was the only place to eat in town. And he was a very colorful character, and he was covered in tattoos. And so we take him out of the tavern out onto the street because there wasn't enough light in the tavern to videotape him. And he's out there, and he's down on the curb, and he's holding out his arms, and he's like, I got Jesus on this arm. I got a big tattoo of Jesus. And I got the devil on this arm. So no matter what happens to me, I'm covered. Okay? This is dualism. Okay, so he's thinking that there are basically two gods who rule the universe, and depending on how things work out for him, you know, he can either show his left arm or his right arm and get, get, you know, get in. Alright, so there's a lot of dualism around, and what I want to make sure is, is that we don't leave this place with even a hint of dualism. Dualism, of course, you know, comes from this, from the idea of two, of, of, of duo. So the opposite of that would be monism. We don't really have that word, but maybe you want to think of the word monarchy. Monarchy is where the king rules. He rules by himself. There's no other king. There's just one king, and it's God. And this is what we have in Scripture. That uh, Scripture's teaching about God is that He is in control of all things. God and Satan are not parallel and equal. They're not even on the same level of existence any more than you and God are on the same level of existence. So let me talk, first of all, about three ideas, high-level ideas, about what... The Bible teaches regarding Satan, and then I want us to dig into these passages that we read this morning because they're very clearly illustrated there. So, number one idea. Satan is a tool that God created for God's own glory. Now, it seems weird. Now, how could Satan be for God's glory? But we'll get there in a second. Satan is a tool that God has created for God's own glory. Number one idea. Number two, Satan is the adversary. Satan really is evil. Satan is the accuser. He hates God and he hates us for sure. That's true. But number three, in the end, Satan is a servant of God and all of his actions which are intended for evil God will use for our good. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan hates you because he hates your maker. But God will use the actions and the evil of Satan and he'll flip it around so that it's good for you. Alright? That's the word of Dan at this point. Now let me give you the word of God. Let's take a look at the four pieces that we read this morning. Let's, well, I got it somewhere. Let's, let's start with the, the story of Job first. Very familiar story. You might want to open it up. You got it there. Then the day came for the angels to meet the Lord. Even Satan was there with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you been? Satan answered the Lord, I have been roaming around the earth going from place to place. Well, first of all, notice this, that the Satan is not omnipresent. Okay? If he is in Poughkeepsie, he's not in Huntington Valley. And if he's in Huntington Valley, he's not in Poughkeepsie. 
If he needs to get to Poughkeepsie, he's going to have to take the train to get to Poughkeepsie. All right? That's, he's roaming around from place to place. He's causing trouble wherever he is, but he's located in space. So first of all, you're seeing that he's way below where God is because God is omnipresent. God is present in all places at all times. Satan is roaming around the earth from place to place. I don't know if it strikes you as weird that there's a conference going on in heaven between God and all of the angels, apparently between not only the, the, the unfallen angels, but the fallen angels. But I didn't write the Bible, I just preach it. And what the Bible says is that there was a meeting in heaven and God and the devil were co-present in the same place. Alright? That's how the story begins. Now... God then points out Job, who apparently was an exceptionally righteous man. And he says, you know, did you notice my servant Job and Satan doing what he does best? And by the way, the word Satan in Hebrew means accuser. He's the prosecuting attorney. He's the one who's always pointing out your faults. He's the one who's dredging up your past and throwing it in your face. This is what the accuser does. Last week we talked about the difference between the Holy Spirit, which convicts you of your sin. Holy Spirit holds a mirror of Scripture up and says, this is what you look like. All right, that, that can hurt. It can sting. But it stings in a good way because it stings in a way that heals you. Satan just throws the junk in your face and says, look how filthy you are. You think you're something, you're nothing. Okay, Satan is the accuser. He might speak truth, but his truth is a killing truth because it's a lie. All right? So Satan does this here even with Job. Have you noticed my servant Job? Job has no, has good reason to respect you, God. You're always protecting him. But if you take away that protection, he's going to curse you. All right? This is the little taunt here. Now, what I want you to notice here is, is what Satan does say that's true here in verse 10. You always protect him and his family and everything he has. Well, how's he been doing that? Well, with all of those ministering angels who protect us. All right? It's something that God does. God protects his people. He just does. All right? He's a hedge of protection. The world is full of storms and troubles. And if you don't have a wall around you, you're going you're gonna to suffer. And if you're not suffering in this moment, if your body is not infected with a virus at this moment, it's because you've got some protection there. All right? If you had no protection, you would be reduced to, you know, just goo on the floor, all right? And so if your life is together, if your body is together, if you have health going on, if you've got a job and if you've got a house to live in, if you've got a family around you, those are bounded, protected spheres of your life, and it's Almighty God who's been protecting you. Now, Satan's desire is just to destroy you pull you apart. Satan is all about chaos. He's going to throw 
chaos in there. But God has been protecting uh, uh, Job. You always protect him and his family and everything he has. Yeah, absolutely true. That's what God does. God protects us from the entropy and the destruction and the chaos that is everywhere threatening around us. That's what God does. So God says, verse 12, All right, Satan, do whatever you want with anything he has, but don't hurt Job himself. God even sets the boundaries of how much destruction Satan is allowed to do. God gives permission to Satan to sting this man, to make his life uh, bedeviled, troubled. Ah, but you can't hurt his body. Okay, You can destroy his property. But notice who has the authority here to set that boundary. God Almighty. There is one king. There are not two kings. There's one king, Yahweh. And he decides where the boundaries are. Do what you want with anything he has. All of his animals, his property, his houses. You can, you can afflict that. We're gonna, we're gonna let this exercise unfold, but you can't hurt his body. Okay, there's gonna be, you know how the rest of this story goes, but I just want you to see this principle that even when God allows Satan to afflict Job, God defines how much. Only this much, no more. I love that last line. Then Satan left the meeting. I've been to a few meetings like that. That is such a funny image. Oh, Satan goes out. All right, he's going to go. He's going to go do his business. Okay, so that's the story. That's the story of Job. Now, let me offer you a couple of metaphors for how to understand what's going on here uh, with Satan and God. Sometimes people read the story of Job and it seems really unfair. How could God allow that? Isn't God a loving God? How could God uh, even be in the same room as the devil? Let me offer two metaphors. The metaphor of the leeches and the metaphor of the sheepdogs. Leeches and sheepdogs. Okay, these are other creatures. One sucks your blood. The other nips at your heels. All right. But in the hands of the surgeon, the leech can produce a certain good. They still use leeches in modern medicine. I don't know if you know that. Okay. They put them on you. I guess they have a certain enzyme that they, they put into you and it's like an anticoagulant. Okay, so if, if, if like in some kind of uh, microsurgery going on and you need an anticoagulant there, they can put a leech on you. Now, that leech does not love you. That leech just wants to suck your blood. That leech is only thinking about himself. But in the hands of a surgeon, this dangerous creature, this blood-sucking creature produces your health. Sometimes God uses the devil like a leech for your good, even though the devil just wants to destroy you. Now let's talk about sheepdogs. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos or maybe been been to some 
uh, Celtic festival or something and seen the sheepdog and the sheeps. They're these, these border collies. They're like the smartest mammals on the planet. All right. And, uh, they are trained by their owner, uh, and they respond to a series of whistles and they'll round up the sheep and split them into groups and head them left and head them right. How does that relationship between the sheepdog and the sheep work? Well, sheepdog, sheep, and shepherd. The sheepdog is just a wolf. It's a tamed wolf. He's a wolf on a leash, the leash of a whistle. The sheepdog is interested in the sheep because in his nature, he eats sheep. Fascinated by sheep. Watches them so carefully. Not because he loves them, but because he wants to bite them and eat them. All right? But when governed by and on the trained leash of the shepherd, the shepherd is able to use this dangerous animal for the good of the sheep, to move them where they need to be. There's a tension there, okay? Because that sheepdog... I mean, if if all of a sudden, you know, he, he had a stroke and went crazy, he could kill the sheep. All right? As long as he's under control, the shepherd uses him for the good of the sheep. These creatures, leeches and sheepdog, seek their own interest. But the surgeon... Or the good shepherd exploits the nature of these creatures, which is essentially hostile to us, for our own good or for the good of the sheep. The the physician uses the leech to produce your health and the shepherd uses the wolf to protect the sheep. They produce life and good precisely because they're evil. But it's evil under control of the surgeon or the good shepherd. I think that's what's happening with the devil. I think God uses the devil like a leech or like a sheepdog. Let's take a look real quick at 1 Samuel chapter 16. So you know that Saul is the first king of Israel. God told Israel that they shouldn't have a king. They're like, oh, we want a king. Everyone else has a king. Give us a king. So he gives them Saul. But now God is planning a transition to the second king, who's going to be the great king, which is King David. Okay, Not a son of, of Saul, but a someone else. And he's got to bring them together. So the Lord sent an evil spirit to Saul that troubled him. An evil spirit from God was bothering him. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but it's pretty clear that God has let loose on Saul, who is his anointed king, a troubling spirit that's going to result in a situation where David then has to be brought in. What God is interested in is introducing David to Saul and the means for accomplishing this is to send a troubling spirit to Saul. Send a troubling spirit to Saul. You're upsetting him. Uh, oh, we know this boy, this shepherd boy. 
He's a great warrior too, this shepherd boy. And he plays the harp beautifully. Let him come in and play the harp for the king and settle his spirit. All right? God uses this evil spirit for his own purpose. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Again, another very familiar passage. This is the thorn in the flesh passage. Our translation doesn't use the phrase thorn in the flesh. I must not be too proud, Paul writes, of the wonderful things that were shown to me. And I think a couple of weeks ago we talked about uh, uh, pride as perhaps one of Paul's besetting sins. I think he may have been inclined toward pride. And so as a result, a painful problem, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, an angel from Satan. God wants to keep Paul humble and dependent on himself. What does he do? He sends he sends him an evil spirit. That evil spirit is not there because he loves Paul. The evil spirit is there because he hates Paul and because he hates God. But God has that evil spirit on a leash and it's only a thorn in the flesh that's not going to kill Paul. But it keeps Paul dependent on God. God uses this afflicting spirit to produce the results that God wants. God needs the Apostle Paul to be humble and dependent on himself. He's inclined toward pride. All right? And so what does he do? He looses a spirit on him that's going to take him down a peg, that's going to make him dependent, that's going to make him crying out to Almighty God. In verse 8, we hear Paul say, I begged the Lord three times to take this problem away. Now, let me say this. If you are beset by troubles, Scripture says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. And so when you have trouble, you need to say, thank you, God, for this. That doesn't mean, though, that you don't also ask God to get rid of the trouble. All right? If you got a thorn in your flesh, it makes sense to pray to God and say, you know, please relieve me of this thorn. And so Paul prays, but God answers him that, you know, actually in this case, you're going to have to keep that thorn. Because you are so inclined toward pride, if you don't have that thorn in your flesh, you're not going to be the man that I need you to be. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is all that you need when you are weak. It's only when you are weak can everything be done completely in my power. Okay, And so God chooses to allow that afflicting spirit to remain in Paul's life to produce the good that he wants. That spirit doesn't love Paul. That spirit is not interested in Paul being a great apostle. But the result of this is precisely that. Now, the operating principle that's over all of this is, is Romans 8.28. Okay? Somebody want to say that out loud to us? All things work together for good. All right? That's including the affliction. Are you got affliction in your life? Guess what? It's working for your good. Now, the, if that affliction is from an evil spirit, that evil spirit hates you and doesn't want it to be for your good, but it ends up working out for your good anyway. That leech that's attached to your body, he's not thinking about whether or not you're going to pull through this surgery well. That, that sheepdog isn't thinking, oh, I love these sheep, they're so cute. But the shepherd and the surgeon use them to produce the good in us. All right, All things work for our good. All right. Now, let me, finally, final word of warning, and we need to get out of here. First Peter. 
So be humble under God's powerful hand. Well, that's always the Christian posture, to be humble. Then he will lift you up when the right time comes. Give all your worries to him because he cares for you. Control yourself and be careful. The devil is your enemy. Now, God uses the devil for your good, but the devil is your enemy. And notice how that's married to this control yourself and be careful because it is the lack of self-control that so often opens the door to the devil. When our tempers get the best of us, we open the door to the devil. Further on, the devil is your enemy. He goes around like a roaring lion looking for someone to attack and eat. That's all he's doing. He's on the prowl. He's looking for stuff to destroy. He hates God. He hates God's creation. He's just thrashing out at stuff. So we have to be careful. Now let me close with just one more observation here. A couple observations. Number one, the devil is real. How do I know? Because Jesus talks about him. And so if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Lord of creation, then I believe that the devil is real. The devil is real, but the devil is no God. He's just a creature. He's an annoying creature. He's a hateful creature. He is an evil creature. He is a creature who will pay for his sins one day. But God, in the meantime, uses him to produce good in us by exercising us, by buffeting us, but never to destroy us. Okay? If we are in Christ, we are always protected, even if we're under attack. We will never succumb to the wiles of the devil if we're in Christ. Okay? Those who are, who are lost, well, they're devoured. Uh, But for those who are in Christ, it's just an irritant and an annoyance. Some things to think about. Let's pray. Father God, we honor you and we adore you and we thank you for uh, the teachings of your word. Lord, I pray uh, that we would uh, see you as the king of everything. I pray that we would not believe that there are any other gods who compete with you. I pray that we would believe that you are sovereign, that nothing happens in this world except by your will and that you make all things work together for our good, for those of us who have been called according to your purposes and love you. Lord, I pray that you would seal that truth to our heart and that it would give us great comfort and great assurance. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.